Jesus concludes his most well-known teaching called the Sermon on the Mount with these words. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, that he is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice says is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Well, I invite you to turn to another section of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. If you have a Bible with you, if not, there should be someone in the pew racks here and in the East Auditorium, there's some folks walking around, or maybe you have a device that's smart enough to have a a Bible on it. Uh, As today, we begin a three-week series uh, entitled Authored, where we are asking the question, who is writing your story? And Jesus, he illustrates this idea of writing our story and putting his words into practice to be, you could say, the script for our story, that Jesus is inviting us to use his words uh, as the authorship, the narration for the story of our lives. And he says when we do that, when we put his words into practice, that it says it's like a man who built his house on a foundation of rock, like building our house on a rock, our life, you could say, on a foundation of rock, that when the rain comes and the floods come and the wind beats against our life, that in him, we can still stand strong. But what's interesting is the other side of that equation. He says, there's those who, interestingly, hear the same words, but do not put them into practice. It says it's like putting their house, their life on a foundation of sand. And that when the wind and the rain and the floods come, the house, our life, comes crashing down with it. And what I find interesting about this, which I always haven't caught, I thought, okay, people who follow Jesus, you know, that's good. People who don't know Jesus and don't know his ways is another, but that's not the way he paints it. He paints it with both audiences having and hearing the exact same words, same author, same narrator, same script, if you will, yet the difference is who and who doesn't put them into practice. And so we all have the same script, you could say, here today, that we're going to hear from Jesus' words. But the question is, will you allow the author and the giver of your life to actually functionally be the author of the living of your life? 
And so this past month, uh, throughout the month of October, we looked, uh, we, do, we did a series around here called At The Movies, where we looked at the stories of filmmakers to illustrate deeper truths within the scriptures. And some of those movies that we used were fictional and some were based on true stories. But in each case, they were written uh, about someone else. It was someone else's story. And in this series, what we wanna do kind of coming out of that is say, okay, let's look at the story that if we're honest, it's the one that most has our attention, our own story, our own life, and how it's being written, and really answering that question, okay, who is functionally writing our life's stories? Because here's the reality. Every single one of us, every single one of us here, someone is writing our story, or something is writing our story. You know, in movies, maybe we pick out uh, a genre of a kind of movie we want to watch. Maybe it's a suspense or a thriller or a comedy or a drama or romantic comedy that we're after. But when it comes to the genres of our life and our life story, you could say that we have different genres in which to categorize what is driving our life narrative forward, what is authoring our story. For some here today, that author, that narrator might be you could say this genre of the need to succeed. The need to succeed that just dominates your life and that to the point where you have maybe blinders on to every other area of your life, that your need to succeed boxes out your physical health, your family life, maybe even God himself. Or maybe the genre for your life story is uh, maybe similarly yet different, like the need to please. Not your agenda, but it's perhaps everyone else's agenda that seems to drive your life forward and is boxing out what God wants to do in your life and then through your life. Or maybe if you're honest today, you're like, I can't even think about what it is I'm doing. I'm just in like the need to survive mode where you feel like chaos is everywhere and the best you can do is react. Or maybe it's security, that if I just make this much or save this much or get this house or secure that job, well then, I'll be set. I'll be driving the kind of life that I feel like I should be driving. Or maybe underneath all that, there's just really this need for acceptance, that you want to belong or maybe at the very least just not be left out. And I think about the, uh, the film that we looked at at our very last week of At The Movies last week, if you're familiar with the, the movie The Greatest Showman. Uh, it really reveals this undercurrent that drives all those narrators, all those authors, and that is almost a sense of insecurity that comes out from underneath all of it. In the, in the film, it looked at this cast of characters and essentially the insecurities that were driving their life. And for us, I think we have these insecurities that drive... A, a thousand different voices, a thousand different directions, some from outside of our lives and all too often with inside of our own heads and hearts that are, you could say, vying for the spot of narrator, trying to narrate the path, the plan, and the outcomes of our life. And then you underscore that with drivers like worry and anxiety and fear. All of these things are very powerful motivators powerful forces that will drive your life forward and not always in the direction that you want it to go. And so, where do we go to find, you could say, the best script, the best author, the best narrator for our life's story? Well, the answer for that, it might feel a little cheesy because it's what we would call kind of, if you've been around church for any length of time, we call it a Sunday school answer. You know what a Sunday school answer is? 
I'm gonna give you a little insider info here. So a Sunday school answer is basically when you're in a context where you feel like you're called on to answer something about the Bible or faith uh, or something like that, that there are a few words that you can just say in an instant and you'll always be right. Uh, this actually happened to me uh, in some form or fashion not that long ago. We were on our men's mentoring group, and uh, it was um, 9 p.m., and for those who don't know, uh, that after 9 p.m., uh, something happens to me. I turn into a pumpkin, and darn near just go narcoleptic, uh, you know, and so uh, it's after 9 o'clock, and we're praying, and sure enough, the next thing I know, um, someone says amen, and it's like a hypnotist snapping their finger or like heads up, seven up, and they say amen. I pop up having no idea where I'm at, uh, just trying to wipe the sleep off my face and like, okay. And so a couple months later, I, I confessed to my group, like, hey guys, I kind of fell asleep. And they're like, yeah, we know. We totally saw you do that. So, okay, fair enough. And so if you're ever in a situation, like in small group or Sunday school class, and you fall asleep and you're out and they call on you, here are the two words you can say every time and you'll never be wrong. So it's just, if you fall asleep, it's like, okay, what do you think about that? What do you think, Brian? Uh, Jesus. Jesus, that's right, Brian, Jesus is the answer. It's on billboards, you'll never go wrong no matter what the question, Jesus is the answer. The other one you can go to is, Brian, what do you think? Uh, the Bible, the Bible, yes, that's right, Brian. The Bible is our source, we can find the answers to all of life's important questions. And so that one's for free, you can use that anytime you need. But as we think about the answer to this question, who do we want to author our life? It is a Sunday school answer because it is Jesus and what he has to say to us in the Bible. And if we had to pick the best of the best, the words that Jesus used as recorded in the Bible to narrate our lives, to be the script that we want to base it off of, you would be hard-pressed to find a better section of Scripture than Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And then even more specifically than that, the Beatitudes, it's called, which is the first few verses that really open up Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's his intro. It's how he gets the whole thing Started. And so over the next few weeks, that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at Jesus' Beatitudes, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, to serve as a script, not just for the next three weeks and a couple of sermons together, but more importantly, I would hope and invite you to explore that this would be the script for the life that you lead all the days of your life that drive you into eternity as well. Okay? And so with that, we're gonna jump into Jesus' Beatitudes. And the word Beatitude, that is a word, it's actually a Latin word that at its root means literally happy. Some translations say happy or blessed. Uh, and that really, it's talking about this is what Jesus is saying. This is the good life. This is the best life, true happiness that you can have. Now, as soon as we talk about pursuing happiness, you almost have to kind of like call a timeout on the field. Like, okay, what do you mean, first of all, by happiness, because while everyone might be interested in discovering it or having it, not everyone agrees on A, what it is, or let alone B, how it is that we get there. Well, Jesus, thankfully, he describes both. He describes what true, actual happiness is, and it's a lot different than what you might default to think in our culture, and the actual path to get us there. And the way he does this is he gives us a series, these beatitudes of, you could say, if this, than that statements. That if this is true of your life, then you can expect this kind of outcome in your life and be blessed, okay? And so what I wanna do here is just 
just read or kind of read over us just what those Beatitudes are in their entirety, and then we'll take some time to look at a couple here today and then kind of work our way through them over the next few weeks. So if you wanna follow with me, we're gonna be in Matthew chapter five, starting in verse three, Jesus' Beatitudes. This is what Jesus says. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so we wanna take some time to unpack those first two, and then over the next two weeks, we'll be looking at the rest. But Jesus, he kicks off these Beatitudes along with the whole Sermon on the Mount with this trajectory-setting statement in Matthew chapter five, verse three. The very first one is simply this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Essentially, the opening words of this Sermon on the Mount of his Beatitudes, it sets the stage really for everything else. Saying, Jesus, if, just saying, if you wanna enter into what the kingdom of heaven, which we could summarize as, if you wanna step into God's will and God's ways for your life, then it starts right here. That this one leads to all of the rest. That to be poor in spirit is the gateway to everything else we're gonna look at both today and in the days ahead. And so blessed are the poor in spirit. Another translation says it this way, Blessed are those who recognize they are spiritually helpless. Now, what does that mean? Well, Jesus says it a different way, but the same thing in Luke chapter nine. He says it this way. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, well, then they will save it. And the word here for life uh, there's a couple of, in the original language there, the Greek text there, there's different words that could be translated life. One word would be the word bios, uh, which we get our word like biology, like our physical life. That is not the word that Jesus is using here. Uh, the word for life that Jesus uses here is suke, which is where we get our word soul or uh, psyche, like where psychology comes up. Like it really, Jesus is saying your, your inner self, like your actual being, that whoever chooses to empty their self, uh, to kind of use our language here today, of the author's of this world, you could say, who, who choose not to depend their life and root their life in the somethings and the someones uh, of this world, but instead almost chooses like an intentional poverty, an intentional helplessness, and then takes that void, if you will, and says, okay, God, you fill that void. Jesus, your will and your ways are gonna fill my life. They fill my life, Jesus says, if you do that, then you will actually save your life, you will save your soul, you will save your very self. Because Jesus actually goes on, he says, because what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, but yet lose or forfeit their very self? 
I recently came across uh, a song by Justin Bieber, uh, not because I listened to Justin Bieber, but because someone else I know who was listening to Justin Bieber told me about this song. Uh, honestly, Scout's Honor, uh, Jesus said, let your yes be yes or no be no, let's just go with that, okay? Okay. <laughs> so, if, for those of you who don't know, Justin Bieber, he is probably most known uh, for his first hit song that came out when he was just 16 years old called Baby. And it uh, topped the Billboard charts uh, in that day back in 2010. Uh, and he was the youngest sale, uh, solo male artist to top the Billboard charts in like 47 years with that song. And of late, now he's 27 years old, uh, his the news and the social media accounts of his personal life suggest that he's kind of on a new search for God in his life, maybe, as you could say, rather than the world, uh, seeing what it might look like for God to author his life. And I, I pray it so that that is what he's experienced and will continue to pursue. Um, but as a young man, you could say he, he pretty much ha had happened to him what Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 9. He instantly gained the whole world. But Bieber, he recently, uh, in, a song, in the song that he released, wrote, uh, and he almost didn't release, he said it was like reluctant because it was how, how vulnerable that he felt like it was, uh, this song called Lonely. And this is the words, the lyrics that he says of himself. He says, everybody knows my past now. Essentially, everyone knows my story. Like my house was always made of glass. And maybe that's the price you pay for money and fame at an early age. And then the pre-chorus says, what if you had it all, but nobody to call? Maybe then you'd know me, because I've had everything, but no one's listening, and that's just lonely. And, and rather than me just say the chorus, I want you to actually hear his voice express his words for his own song here. I'm so script says, blessed are those who are rich. Blessed are those who are resourced, who are popular, who are powerful, who are famous. Happy are those who have obtained and established their entire life, authored their life in the pursuits and the pleasures that this world has to offer. But what Justin Bieber sings about experiencing that, you could say after the fact, but that Jesus warns us in advance of it, Whoever wants to save their own life, whoever wants to define and author their life on their own terms by the pursuits and the pleasures of this world, well, they'll lose their life. They will lose out. They'll miss out on a life both here and in eternity authored by God. But, Jesus says, whoever chooses to lose their life for me, Jesus says, whoever chooses to be poor in spirit, to be spiritually helpless, to depend completely on me, Jesus says, Whoever loses their life for me will save it. Because what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? And so Jesus paints a very stark warning that if you fill your soul, if you fill yourself with the ways of this world, that if you let the things of this world define you, that in the end they will be the things that 
destroy you. Proverbs 20, or excuse me, 1625 says, there is a way that seems right onto men, but in the end leads to death. And so we are faced either by decision or by default with a choice. There are only, ultimately, you could say two choices. Out of all the genres and the categories that we could narrate and call the category of our life, that ultimately there are only two choices. There is the world's way or there is God's way. And we have to choose. Again, either by decision or just by default. And default, Jesus says later, that road is wide and many enter through it. But to choose by decision is a narrow path and takes intentionality and a choice. And the way that we step into that, Jesus reveals actually in the second beatitude in his list here for us. He reveals the way we choose his path. And so follow along, Matthew chapter five, verse four, our second beatitude. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, first glance, maybe the connection isn't so obvious, and it wasn't to me either. But to mourn, if we understand, is to, first of all, it's to experience deep grief. That's what it means to mourn, to experience deep grief. And typically, it is a beatitude that is actually read just as a verse uh, in many funeral settings. We have a funeral here today, and I assume it will be one that is shared. But Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, is this idea that, you know, if we mourn the loss of a loved one, that God has comfort for us. But know that the meaning of this in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount actually goes deeper. That the context here in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount means fully, blessed are those who mourn sin. Blessed are those who mourn sin. And how this plays out in a funeral setting is that, yes, we mourn death, but we recognize that death is the result of sin entering our world from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden from the very beginning when sin and the curse of death that was not a part of God's original plan entered into the human experience. Sin ushered in brokenness and death into the world as we know it. And so when we mourn and when we hurt over the loss of a loved one with all of our pain and all of our questions and almost as desperate like this, it just doesn't seem right when people die. It's because you're right. It's not right. It was not the way that God originally designed it because it was sin that brought death into the human experience. And so The context Jesus is painting here is that blessed are those who mourn sin and all its implications. Quite specifically, uh, the NIV study Bible paints it this way. It says, blessed are those who mourn over both personal sin and corporate sins. We're mourning our sinful world. And so, yes, we mourn the sinful realities of the world we live in, the corporate sins uh, that we we are to enter into a, a grief of the sin that we see in our world through genocide and abortion and corruption and injustice. These are the corporate sins of our world that we see that, that, that we do mourn, that break our hearts. But with that, we must also mourn our own personal sin. We have to recognize and mourn and grieve over our own sin in our own life. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he was uh, a German Christian who was martyred actually for taking head on uh, corporate sin in our world. He took on Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime in World War II and who then was caught for it and executed. And so here's a man who literally handed his life over uh, to fight injustice and in genocide in his, own, in his own nation, but he did not do this at the absence of mourning his own personal sin as well. He recognized that he also, in his own Christian life, had this to address. And the way that he talked about it as a teaching for us, he says that in our Christian life, in our journey towards uh, Jesus, that he says there are three, you could say, progressive stages in the Christian life. And he says it this way, that stage one is where when you become a Christian and you start to see the contrast, you start to be able to recognize the difference between God's ways and the world's ways, and you see these things, and you become like disgusted with sin. Like you're just like, oh, you start to see it, and then honestly, what you start to get disgusted with the most is when you see sin in other Christians. Like within the church, you start to see like the hypocrisy and the inconsistency, and honestly, it just starts to drive you nuts. And and maybe you can identify with feeling that way, where like you can like I'm at that stage where I can see it in other people and the hypocrisy, and it, it just bothers me. Um, and this is what Bonhoeffer says. He says the good news of that is that you're growing in your faith. You're, you're, you're able to recognize the difference between the way of Jesus and the way of the world, and you see sin, and it bothers you. And he says, that's good. But the bad news is, you're only at stage one. You're only at stage one. He says, stage two is when you become more disgusted at your own sin rather than focusing on everyone else's. So that one stung me a bit. Um, so I'll let that rest with you. Stage two is when we become more disgusted at our own sin rather than everyone else's. But then stage three, Bonhoeffer says, it's the most important of the three stages because it's at stage three that then we realize, oh yeah, it is God's grace that is good enough and powerful enough to cover all of my sin and others. Stage three is where we recognize the goodness and the grace of God, that we are, in fact, blessed, as Jesus says, that blessed are those who mourn sin, for they will be comforted. They will receive that reality. Blessed are you when you confess, when you mourn your own sin and receive the comfort of God's forgiveness through his unmerited grace, nothing that we earned on our own part is a gift of grace through Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross alone. And now, Bonhoeffer says, we are now positioned to, in stage three, fully engage what it actually means to be the church, to live out what Jesus intended uh, within the church, within the body of believers, not as some like self-righteous Pharisee who's running around pointing out everybody else's sin, but as one who is experienced the comfort and the forgiveness of mourned and confessed sin and is now positioned to help others discover the same grace that you or I have found. Martin Luther, the church reformer of the 16th century, uh, he describes the Christian life, I would say stage three Christianity as Bonhoeffer says it this way. He says, Christianity is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. The Christian faith can be summed up as Christianity is one beggar telling another where to find bread. Now, before I let us off 
you know, the warm and fuzzy hook of beggars and bread quotes and, you know, we go off to lunch and all this uh, stuff. Um, I've heard it said, and I completely agree, that the responsibility of the preached word of God is to first comfort the afflicted, but also to confront the comfortable. God's word is to comfort the afflicted, but also to confront the comfortable to recognize that yes, there is the grace of God that brings comfort, but with that there is a confrontation that we need to allow the Holy Spirit to have room to convict. And we live in a time in the church uh, that both, you could say at large across our country, but also includes us where brothers and sisters, we need to be confronted with our comfort of living in stage one Christianity. That followers of Jesus Christ, it would seem these days, are consumed with stage one Christianity. That a Christianity that we see in our day is marked by a Bible that is used to comfort and confirm our own cognitive bias on whatever the issue, whether left or right. A Christianity that seeks the scriptures to support and to supplement our own presuppositions. And all the while, seems to be clamoring for the chance to call out others' errors. 2 Timothy 3 says that all scripture, it is God-breathed and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so stage one Christianity, it is all about taking the energy of teaching and rebuking and correcting others, but perhaps we do better to mature our practices to that of a stage two Christianity, Uh, to approach the scriptures not primarily to rebuke others, but first to rebuke us, that you, that me, that I, that we might be taught, rebuked, corrected, trained in righteousness so that So that this is the purpose, this is the goal. So that as servants of God, you, me, us, may then be thoroughly equipped to do good for every good work. It says elsewhere that for every good work that God has prepared in advance for us to do. You know, the words of Jesus in this beatitude, blessed are those who, stage one, point out everyone else's sin. It's not my version. In fact, and even if you're not a Bonhoeffer fan, Jesus would take on stage one Christianity later in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about this reality that we go around plucking specks of sawdust out of people's eyes all the while living with a plank outside of our own eye to which Jesus says of stage one Christianity, you hypocrite, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, confess, repent, mourn of your own sin, stage two, And then by the grace of God, live in stage three Christianity where you can then clearly see to in love and care and grace and helpfulness remove the speck from your brother's eye. And may I remember, this is good news. That's the reminder. Like this is not, this is Jesus authoring our life we actually choose to believe is the best way to live life. And, and I'm, I'm guessing for you that if you've been spending lots of your time running around pointing out everyone else's sin, I'm guessing that's not super life-giving for you. 
And while it manifests itself in all kinds of ways around water coolers at work or you know, family get-togethers around the holidays or as we all seen on the 24-7 feed of social media, um, this is not a social media thing. This is a heart thing. And it, yeah, it manifests itself on social media, but ultimately this is a matter of the heart that is playing out. And as an aside, even if you take pride in this moment and be like, well, I never post anything like that on social media. I bet like me, you have a pretty good thread going in your heart and in your head. But Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, who choose to give their energy to first their sin, stage two, for they will be stage three comforted by the grace of God, willing and able to share the grace of God with others. And so, I don't know about you, but I know I need a lot of help with that. Uh, and so thanks be to God, he helps us. And so let's ask him for that help as we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, <laughs> holy and good are you, holy and good is your name. May we come to you empty, poor in spirit, anxious only to be filled by you. That in our lives and in our world, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done. That just as it is perfectly in heaven, we would start to see our lives and thus our churches and thus our country and thus our world marked by a stage three kind of Christian faith where it's your kindness, Lord, it says, that leads us to repentance. And so Father, we thank you for your daily bread. You're providing everything that we need to be able to build our life on the rock rather than the sand if we put these things into practice. And so we do. We practice confession. We practice right now mourning our sin. We ask that you would forgive us our debts, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our sin. Forgive us that we sound all too often like the story you paint in scripture of the, the proud religious Pharisee that says, thank God I'm not like that sinner over there, that tax collector, when instead, God, we need to take the position of the tax collector and say, Lord God, have mercy on us, a sinner, that we might experience the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy and the comfort of your goodness in our lives. And so, Father, we mourn our pride, our selfishness, our conceit and we confess it and we're honest about it and with that as your word says your prayer says lead us not into any more of those temptations and when they show up as it says give us a way to stand up under it to, to show us the way out that we would not live in that pride but instead of by your grace and with that God would we also forgive our debtors because yours is the kingdom it's your kingdom. It's not our personal kingdom. It's not a political kingdom. It's your kingdom that is taking place by your power. And may it all be for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.